Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. We're returning to you today with slight head colds. So if you hear a distant sniff, it is me leaning as far off the microphone as I can and dealing with my snotty face. (laughs) Gross. (laughs) But we're so glad to be with you once again on our trek through Russia. Things are heating up, folks. Ladies, how did you find this particular section? How does this affect you? Emotionally, hmm? there's a lot of juicy tea in this. I section. know. Yeah, we gotta spell <laughs> the it. hot Let's tea. Spill the tea. Spell it. <laughs> well, it was all kinds of relational drama. We finally got to see into the relationship between Nikolai and Sonia. No, not Nikolai and Sonia. Oh, Freudian slip. Nikolai and whatever her name is, Maria. And then we move to Sonia, and we get a little perspective on how she's doing at home, and then kind of a little Pierre check in at the end. Right. So okay, let's just dive right into Nikolai and Maria. I want to ask you an overarching question, for, and this applies to the Sonia um, chunk as well, I guess. Do we feel that Tolstoy is just sort of at this stage of the novel going, ah, I could make this go either way. Nah, I, I think it's Maria. And do we feel that he's being a little, um, what's sort I'm looking for? Dismissive as to the course of his previous characters? Or is this all of a piece? That's a great question. I don't think... I didn't get the sense that this was dismissive. I actually felt like he had planned for this in setting Maria up as unlovely, in particularly in her spiritualness. The fact that she is mm. so morally strict with herself actually becomes significant in this relationship with Nikolai. It's one of the things that he finds the most alien and attractive about her. And um, it put her into pers- perspective for me why he might have been so um, brutal in his assessment of her all along. Not Nikolai, but Tolstoy. The way that he's described her is very unflattering up to this point. But now now he's turning his own description on its head as we see her through Nikolai's eyes. And I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, Ian, I actually wanted to ask you about this line. For the first time, all that pure spiritual inner work, which she had so far lived by, emerged All her inner work of discontent with herself, her suffering, her yearning for the good, obedience, love, self-sacrifice. All this now shown in those luminous eyes and her fine smile and every feature of her tender face. So, Ian, of the three of us, you have been the most vocal about Maria and about how you're pretty sure Tolstoy is making fun of her and all of her spiritual inner work. Does this put an end to that line of thinking. Absolutely not. No, I'll respond. <laughs> See, I'm the person Good. who's usually asking all of the questions. And generally, you guys go, well, both. Then making the question look a little silly. No. So I'm going to do that to you right now. Okay. Which is to say, of course he's making fun of her. He's making fun of everyone. He's making fun of Andre and of Pierre and of Natasha and of all of his characters. Right. He's always setting them up so that he can have a gentle chuckle at their expense. Although, I think he's kinder to some than others. And he hasn't been particularly kind to Maria. In this scene, I'm all kinds of confused. 
not because I have, I have a strongly held opinion that's being contradicted by the text, but instead because he has spent so much time setting up a scenario in which we have these really strong identities of these characters. And here are the two that we have so far. Maria is a little childish due to the fact that she has been essentially kept from the world of relationships with anyone by caring for her cruel, aged father. And therefore, her vision of the world is a little lopsided and a little overblown and a little... There's a word that's not coming to me, but I think you guys get the point. Yeah. Then we have in Nikolai, a guy whose opinion also can't be trusted. And now Hmm. we are seeing through Nikolai's eyes, which makes me wonder if we're supposed to take him seriously, a vision of a person whom we've already had a pretty strong verdict on. I'm not trying to say that Tolstoy thinks she's a bad person at all. I think she's wonderful, but there are some things about her that have definitely been explicitly poked fun at. And so this whole this whole passage was a little bit confusing to me. Yeah, well, I could see that. I, I acknowledge being confused at the switch of perspectives as well. But I think it is consistent, not only in Maria, not only Tolstoy's perception of Maria being more positive now, but also his description of Nikolai is much more in keeping with the philosophy that he's been proposing in the last couple of sections. Nikolai Well, that's becomes, good. Tell me more about that. Well, in this section, it's almost like, I'll read a little passage to describe, but it's almost like Nikolai becomes the pattern man for Tolstoy's philosophy of a multiplicity of causes. How should you live in a world where you you are important, but not that important? Your, your actions have effects, but not far-reaching ones. You know, like that whole philosophical conversation. Listen to this section. It's... Uh, chapter, I think it's chapter six, at the end of chapter six. Just as until sit, Rostov had not allowed himself to doubt that what everyone recognized as good was indeed good. So also now, after a brief but sincere struggle between his effort to arrange his life according to his own reason and a humble submission to circumstances, he chose the latter and gave himself up to the power which he felt was irresistibly drawing him somewhere. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, he's going with his gut and with whatever beautiful woman is before him, and she happens to be wealthy, and this is all good for him. But at the same time, this um, acknowledgement of a power irresistibly drawing him somewhere, I don't think we can ignore the fact that Tolstoy is um, intentionally presenting that argument to us. He's on about that. He's Has on been about since that. The beginning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree with you. I, I started this passage myself because I thought this was the verdict. As I'm reading this whole first chapter, I think I'm confused. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. And then that happened. And I thought, okay. And so now my questions have to do, and these aren't ones we need to take out necessarily, but my questions have to do with whether, whether it works, Mm -hmm. taking a step back from the story and looking at it as a matter of literary art. Tolstoy, have you actually done too much as an omniscient narrator here? Have you, you, maybe you can't have your cake and eat it too. Maybe you can't give us such a clear picture of a, of a boy and then expect us to hear him like a man all of a sudden. That that might be too more more than more than he can expect of us. Yeah, I I see what you mean. Although oftentimes this this is a tool the author uses to show us um, to show us a good match that that a person draws out the most mature version of a character we've come to know and love. I think I see that happening. That might be a, a too positive or simplistic a reading, but I see it happening in his description of Maria for sure. On the the page before where I was reading a minute ago, it describes the way that she's anxious she will behave in front of Rostov and then the way that she actually does when he's present. And 
and she is uh, unself-conscious and dignified and beautiful and effortless, so much so that that Mademoiselle Bourienne, who's like, you know, the coquette of the entire novel, is amazed and says, well, I couldn't have flirted with a guy better than that, you know? But there's, right. there's a reality to the elegant, womanly way that Maria presents herself that we've never seen before, and Nikolai draws it out of her. I wonder if the same thing's happening for Nikolai. I think that's, again, is one of the two possible readings. The other one, however, is that how can it be more real if it's the first time we've ever seen it? If the first time she's ever seen it? Like, on the other hand, perhaps contact with this particular man and with this new emotion is causing her to be someone that's very dissimilar from the person that she has been so far. I guess um, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to basically say there are two different ways to to look at this this whole scene, given the information we have about our characters so far. Yeah, I see what you mean. Is it? I don't know. I guess my only rubric then for judging this change is: is it a positive one? Is she yeah. becoming someone else, completely dissimilar from who she used to be, in a negative way that we would be worried about, or is it calling the best out of the two of them? To know one another. Great question. And I don't. I. It seems clear to me with Maria that this is not a um, a negative shift necessarily. It's certainly more comfortable to not be an idiot in public, which she really has been up to this point. You know. And and she seems to also be be happy instead of dire in her yeah. Well, about how her can life. you argue against this beautiful metaphor? Her face from the time Rostov entered was suddenly transformed as the complex, skillful artwork on the sides of a carved and painted lantern, which had seemed crude, dark, and meaningless before, suddenly emerges with unexpected, striking beauty when the light is lit inside. So is Princess Maria's face suddenly transformed. My argument would be, I'm not arguing with it at all. I think right. you're right. <laughs> I'm just trying to demonstrate that there's not one reading of like... No, no, I are, agree. There are more ways to look at the scene than that. Um, but... But I do think that the bit about Nikolai and how he can imagine a future with every other girl that he has encountered except this woman mm -hmm. does lead us back to Tolstoy's, as Megan was pointing out earlier, to Tolstoy's historical point and his, his, his hermeneutic for reading life. He's not imposing a meaning on the future with her. He's letting circumstance draw him. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, I thought that was beautiful and actually kind of true. I think yeah, I, I had a similar experience and I, I don't, I couldn't imagine a pat uh, vision of the future in the same way as, as, you know, previous imaginings. Mm -hmm. I think there's something real to that, which is kind of lovely. Yeah. I wrote in the margins a couple times in this passage as he goes from like indirect narrating what Rostov is thinking to indirect narrating what Maria is thinking. I wrote a couple times, how can Tolstoy know how a woman's mind works this way? Mm. Because what do you mean? Well, particularly um, her, her worries in the two days before Rostov comes to visit her about how she will behave and how she shouldn't go see him and she should send her aunt instead because here are all the things that he might think just her anticipations of consequences in having a conversation with him are so that is how a woman's mind works in a lot of ways. Thinking ahead to the consequence of one tiny conversation and reading emotional material into everything. That just is mm. part of being mm -hmm. a woman. And how can Tolstoy know that? It was a little bit like, oh my goodness, how you must have talked to your wife before you wrote this passage. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was amazing storytelling for sure. 
perceptive man, I think. And so, Ian, I can see the side of this where it's awful convenient for Nikolai that he is falling in love with a woman who's going to restore his relations with his family and provide for them. And there's a lot of practical good that's going to come out of this. And there's a cynical side to that. However, this is perhaps the first truly positive romantic relationship we've seen seen through the rubric of Tolstoy's philosophy of life. They're, they're living intuitively in some ways instead of, of rationally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Can I read this one little passage? I sure. think it really puts a pin in what we're talking about. Um, he's thinking about Sonia versus Maria in his mind versus all of the women that he's ever flirted with. He says, with Sonia, he'd already made up a future picture. And it was all simple and clear precisely because it was all invented. And he knew everything there was in Sonia. But with Princess Maria, it was impossible for him to picture a future life because he did not understand her, but only loved her. What do you guys make of that? I think there are there are two, again, two different ways to read it. Um, the positive one is finally you've stopped trying to control the world around you mm-hmm. and you've stopped trying to manipulate. You've stopped seeing yourself as the beating center of all important things going on in the universe and stopped relating everyone that you meet and every situation to your own future and how you want it to look. I think that's super positive and read in that light. The other way to look at it, however, ties to to another another page where he says she must be a wonderful girl precisely an angel well no she flipping isn't no right she's a person and you don't know her actually in the way that you do know sonia mm-hmm. and have your entire life and I, I think one of the things about tolstoy's style is that he and it's a beautiful thing a good thing he goes all the way into the emotional ins and outs of what people are thinking and feeling mm-hmm. and describes them explicitly and he's such a good writer that he can do it and it's amazing where other people would find... It being clunky. Yeah, bombast. Mm-hmm. Other people would find bombastic, clunky prose that is is telling instead of showing. Mm-hmm. Tolstoy can usually pull it off. But in moments like these, it makes it difficult for me to know whether we're supposed to take the character seriously. Mm. Well, I can see what you're saying. However, I think that part of what's going on is that Nikolai actually doesn't know Sonia. And that's what Tolstoy is saying. Right, that's that what he, he says has, right there. He's imagined a Sonia and he has fantasized about her, but he doesn't actually know the real Sonia in a way that he's he doesn't know Maria either. But he has all the tools necessary to be open to knowing her. There's one line in here where it says dreams about Sonia had something gay and toy like about them. Like he's like Emily saying he doesn't understand Sonia. She's a Sonia. She's a toy in his mind and he's using her to present a vision of the future to himself. He's inventing things with Sonia like a toy. And mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to be a a well-fleshed out relationship with Sonia. It seems to be shallow and mm, childish. Mm-hmm. And Totally. But that's not to say that I don't think there's a negative side to this. Absolutely. When we see the the um when we see the the effect on Sonia, what's happening at home and how Nikolai has just distanced himself. He hasn't communicated with her. He hasn't said, by the way, my heart is changing about this. He's not let her in at all. He's left her at home with his, frankly, kind of emotionally abusive mom to be browbeaten into giving him up. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any way to let Nikolai off the hook where that's concerned. You're absolutely right. That's a negative. 
picture. Yeah. I'm not trying to keep anybody on the hook except Tolstoy as an author. Yeah. Because this happened so fast. I mean, it's like, it's like your neck is being broken with how fast your head is supposed to snap around. Yeah. And that's, it's jarring. I think it's fundamentally jarring. And furthermore, I think as a good reader, we have to ask these questions because he's not um, speaking with one loud clarion call of a voice. The line, for example, he knew everything that was in Sonia. Well, we can either read it sarcastically or we can read it literally right. because it is the narrator speaking. And who's to say that we're supposed to read that one sarcastically, but then read the the vague intimations of a joyous future and a prayer answered. Um, oh, yeah. That he's, that he's never even, I mean, he's never prayed a day in his life. And all of a sudden he's taking an answered prayer as evidence that he's supposed to marry. Like, who's to say that we're supposed to read one of those sarcastically and one of those literally? I agree. The thing about the prayer scene that I think is interesting is the the conclusion Nikolai takes away from it isn't actually that God has answered his prayer. It's that it was yeah. uh, it was a lucky circumstance. Break. Yeah. Again, yeah. though, uh, I'm I'm not talking about Nikolai in that moment. I'm talking about the the narrator. Right. right. And so am I. And the fact that that's what the narrator chooses to fixate on actually mm-hmm. leaves room for a reading in which Nikolai is wrong. And there really is some kind of divine response, which goes a ways towards explaining the suddenness, I think, that you're noticing in this relationship that, uh, you know, there is something true to life in that as well, that when you Mm. meet the person you're going to marry, there's, you know, many people report just knowing that it's the one and it doesn't make sense to anyone around them and it's really fast um, but there's a shift that takes place that is a little supernatural mm-hmm. sometimes. And totally. that doesn't mean that you aren't left with the consequences of everything that came before, right? There's a mess that usually uh, results yeah. from, from such things. And uh, and so yeah, I, I think there is a, a supernatural element at play here that's sticky for the everyday world and uh, is going to leave them with a lot of baggage, but there's something else going on. And the narrator doesn't allow you to, to go off into flights of fancy and considerations of the providential hand because he moves you directly from Nikolai having this, receiving this letter to Sonia's situation and writing it. And he basically says, and consider immediately the consequences of this assumption. Nikolai heaves a sigh of relief and says, well, whether it be coincidence or providence, we're going with it. No looking back, man. Meanwhile, Sonia... And he kind of sticks your nose in it. Okay, so, and I'll I'll try and frame the question openly. Are we supposed to be, as readers, on Sonia's side? And I don't mean in the romance. I mean as a person. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Okay, I think she's a sneaky minx. (laughs) I do, I think. What a great She's kind of. She's always been manipulative. That's always been part of her character. And mm-hmm. you always have the option to let her off because she's she's put upon. She's poor. She's in an unfortunate circumstance and needy, you know. But the way that she self-consciously sacrifices in order to earn position in the family and earn pity, frankly, from the other members of the family is um, it's a little bit icky. It's she is the picture of Nietzschean Christianity, right? Nietzsche, okay. 
said that Christianity is bunk because it's a power play by sacrificing oneself one actually puts themselves on the upper hand over right. everyone else and that is obviously what Sonia is doing yeah okay interesting so I didn't see this while I was reading but do you do you guys think that that this whole question of Nikolai's future happiness becomes a fulcrum on which two foils sit Ooh, what do you mean well, I mean that Maria has spent her entire life mm, yes. in self-sacrifice, whether it's good or it's bad. We've talked about many, many times. It looks like Maria and Sonia are very similar characters to me. Oh, yeah, I've never really thought of good. that. Yeah, neither had I. That's awesome. You know what the difference is, though, is that Maria has actually actually gone through suffering. Like she right. thought that she was going through suffering in the same way that Sonia does. But then it, she actually does when her father yeah, dies um, and she's left with the consequences of finding out that he does actually love her and she actually finds resentment in her heart towards him. Um, she has rubbed up against reality in a way that I'm not sure Sonia has. Yeah, I think I agree with you about that. Yeah, there's also just thinking of Sonia a little more. There is a shift away from her being this martyr figure and towards her being um, selfish and passionate and vengeful. And I think on the other hand, Princess Maria is kind of moved away from the martyr and towards someone who's living and breathing and feeling. So they're both moving towards um, some kind of emotion reality. and reality rather mm -hmm. than this martyr image of themselves. They are. But Sonia's is vengeful. Sonia's is negative. And Maria's... I was going to say what separates them. Well, Marius doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to have negative consequences for other people. It still is, except Sonia. Well, that's true. Super negative consequences for Sonia. But does Maria know about Sonia? Um, I don't know that it's necessary that she know about Sonia in Tolstoy's world of cause and effect. Oh, I think it it is if we're thinking about whether the change in in the woman is negative. Does it have an an immoral component to it? Because Maria is not trying to hurt Sonia. Sonia is trying to hurt. Maria. No, she's trying to keep Nikolai. Yeah, but you remember the scene at the end of that chapter where she glories in the fact that they can't have each other? And that's the only reason that she lets him go? Yeah, I didn't read that as as focused at Princess Maria any more than it's focused on herself. I think Sonia comes off very badly in this chapter. I'm not I'm not proud of her. <laughs> I think she does badly done, Emma. But um but I also think that that it's funny to me that on both sides of this coin, what is pushing the situation along and causing the decisions is passion. And I think Tolstoy wants us to look at that and say, what's the difference between these two passions? I, I just, um, I guess, as a reader, I feel that he's offering not only the question, but the answer. When he says to, of Sonia, he says... Now, for the first time, her pure love for Nicholas suddenly began to grow into a passionate feeling, which stood above the rules and above virtue and above religion. That's not happening in Maria. But it is happening in Sonia. She's rejecting virtue and religion and placing her passionate obsession as kind of like an unholy feeling. Hmm. I see what you mean. Yeah, I mean... As far as Maria is concerned, just evidence to back up what you're saying, she does, even in her pursuit of Nikolai, if we can call it that, she is abiding by the rules of mourning. She won't go out with him under 
unseemly circumstances. Um, she recognizes herself under the authority of conventional rules. And they're honest with each other in a way that Sonia and Nikolai just aren't. And it, the fault lies on both sides, but there is no reality or honesty between them. Sonia needs to tell Nikolai what's actually happening at right. home, and she needs to actually express her feelings about it. And Nikolai, for his part, needs to stop pretending that he like who wants to marry a guy who is going to be with you because he has to not because he wants to mm-hmm. well and they were children when the promise was made to begin with right, right? and i think unfortunately sonia still is a child mm. yeah yeah maybe that goes back to that absence of suffering you were talking about well just thinking of sonia still being a child she in this way, when she decides to give in to this passionate feeling, she has a propensity to be secretive. But here she decides she decides or resolves to be passive aggressive and withhold any kind of definite response to the countess and resolve in her heart to to bind Nicholas to her forever. And that felt a little witchy almost, you know, <laughs> like actually I'm going to avoid being tied down to any promise of giving him up and find ways to enthrall him forever. Well, yeah. Know? And Nikolai has no say in this matter. No. In fact, she seems perfectly aware of the fact that he's leaning towards princess Maria and she doesn't take that into consideration. Or, I mean, I would be okay if she did take it into consideration and fought with him about it, you know, sent him a letter, like you were saying, Emily, that said, here's how things are going at home. You left me here. And what gives, dude? You can't do this, you know, and have a have an honest emotion, Sonia. But it's all cloaked in this secretive, manipulative, passive aggressive witchiness. Self-aggrandizing. I mean, I I think he's clear with us for the first time, perhaps as clear as he can be that Sonia is concerned with herself above all. Yeah. I was going to jump in there and say that um, for a couple of reasons, I don't think she's actually thinking about Nicholas at all. Hmm. And one of them is that she calls him Nicholas. Yeah. She never calls him Nicholas. I don't think, I don't think she actually is thinking about him at all. I don't think she's thinking about the leaning towards princess Maria. I think he's a total pawn from her perspective. What she's really, the only thing that, that has her aware of the scenario at all is the manipulation she's getting from the countess. And the consciousness that in the social setting, Nicholas is expected to do this. Um, but I, I, I honestly, it doesn't seem as though his intentions or his emotions or his love or lack thereof sinks down into her consciousness at all on this scene. What do you guys make of the fact that after they've gone deep into the scenario between Sonia and Nicholas, it shifts to Sonia speaking lies into Natasha and Andre's situation? Basically recalling a moment where she had a fake vision to give Natasha some kind of weird, creepy, uh, positive feeling about her future with Andre. She, she doubles down and does it again for seemingly no reason. Why, why did, did you guys have a, a reading of this, a, a reason that she does that? What does she get out of that? I honestly don't know. She gets to be right. Hmm. But, but she's also kind of deluded herself it says Sonia was softened agitated and moved by all that had happened that day especially by the mysterious fulfillment she had just seen of her divination so I mean 
on the one hand, Tolstoy is at work again here reminding us that we interpret our past in the light of our uh, present and the way that we want to see it. And we can fool ourselves in that way. But it, it, for all, my gut responses, uh, it gives her the, the pleasure of having been right about the future in that moment. Maybe being significant because she got a, a, pre, a preview. Well, that's what she wants above all is to be significant and to be lovable uh, and to and be she worthy. Wants Nicholas. Mm-hmm. But she wants to she wants to be lovable to Nicholas, which is why she self sacrifices. She, she wants to be more worthy. Her feel, mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes her feel worthy of him and of everyone's love. And poor girl, she has been treated as unworthy her whole life. No wonder she is obsessed with feeling worthy. Um. But that is, I think that's what her relationship to Nikolai does for her, is gives her a significance. Hmm. I don't know how the man does it. Think think about the, the string of events like this. Nikolai prays for the first time. With tears in his eyes. <laughs> yeah, with tears in his eyes. A letter appears at the door as though it is a gift from Providence confirming his prayers. Now here's the tightrope walk. The narrator tells us it's providence and that it's an answer to his prayers. Nikolai doesn't see that at all. Completely goes over his head. But the narrator tells us this is providence. This is an answer to prayer. Then we go to the next scene. and In the very next scene, we are given documented evidence that the letter itself had nothing of truth in it. It was a complete fabrication and a manipulative lie from Sonia. Where do we land? Where are we supposed to land? I mean, on the one hand, I can see how he ends up where in a, in a position that's similar to his position on history, generally speaking, where he says um, providence uses everything, right? All things are causes. All things are effects. There's a there's a never ending web of interrelated connectedness between all between everything. Ah. Right? But, it, but it bothers the heck out of me as a reader because I'm standing on shifting sand. Yeah. The sand is constantly shifting back and forth. And yes, it does give you, and maybe this is the, the root of its greatness. It gives you a sense of being in real life where everything kind of feels like shifting sand a little bit. Man, it's going to be incredible to watch him turn all of that shifting sand into some sort of coherent message that allows him to join the company of the greatest authors in history. If he does, but Emily has been telling us that maybe it's not going to, maybe it's going to shift to the very, very end. (laughs) Who knows, man? That would be a bother to me. That would bother me. I would agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Pierre, Mm. we actually get some Pierre here towards the end of the, of the scene. It's two chapters in, in a situation where I don't think it needed to be two chapters. Yeah. It was basically two pages and he goes, ah, chapter marker here. And then it was two more pages that are almost exactly the same. I I can find nothing to distinguish them. Could you guys find anything to distinguish these two scenes from each other? Well, um, yes, but it might be tenuous. I don't know if I'm right about it. (laughs) Okay. The, the upshot doesn't change for Pierre in either of these situations. He's a prisoner. He refuses to give his name and he's being, uh, basically tried for arson because they can't figure out what else he might be. They can tell he's more significant than the other prisoners, but he won't tell them who he is. So they're just going to try him in a faceless way, along with the rest of the guys they picked up off the street. In the first chapter, that's all you get, or the first set of chapters. But then in the second one, though it's a reiteration of his position as prisoner and nameless guy, he the, the officer who he's talking to has a name, 
And there's a moment where Pierre and this other guy, whose name I should use, but can't remember. It starts with a D. Davout. There it is. Davout. Davout. Yes, Davout. Davout. Pierre and Davout are looking at each other. And here's how Tolstoy describes it. Davout raised his eyes and looked fixedly at Pierre. For a few seconds, they looked at each other, and that gaze saved Pierre. In that gaze, beyond all the conventions of war and courts, human relations were established between these two men. In that one moment, they both vaguely felt a countless number of things and realized that they were both children of the human race, that they were brothers. Mm. This is the effect that Pierre's gaze has on everyone. That's why we love him. <laughs> it's true. Right? It's totally true. <laughs> but at the same time, this humanizes even, even the, I don't know, Pierre's situation that we got in the chapter before. It gives a face to the enemy and gives the enemy Pierre as a person. It's, hmm. It individualizes the experience. At least that's how I took it. Hmm. I like that. In the, in the first chapter with Pierre, chapter nine, we're told that he's a prisoner among other lower class Russians. Uh, it says all the Russians held together with Pierre were people of the lowest estate and all of them recognizing Pierre as a gentleman shunned him the more so as he spoke French. Pierre listened with sadness to their mockery of him. He's being set up to be completely isolated. He wanted to make himself one of the common Russian people, which is why he's dressed the way that he is. And he's trying with everything in him to, to, make himself common um and he's rejected by the very people he's trying to be which i think leads to that situation with davu where he all of a sudden is more willing to be open and it gives it some pathos yeah it does i guess we're, we finally know it really has nothing to do with with social class pierre's been chasing people that. being people yeah well, he um, hasn't lost yet his sense of self-importance <laughs> and the the occult feeling that all hinges on him somehow because he still believes he's off to be executed by the end of the chapter. Yeah, he does. With no indication that that's really the case. No one has told him he's off to be executed. He just believes that's the case. The ending is really quite dark of this chapter. Yeah. It, yeah. Do you want to read it? Yeah, do it. He is meditating on his circumstances and says, who was it finally who was executing, killing, depriving of life him, Pierre, with all his memories, longings, hopes, thoughts? Who was doing it? And Pierre felt that it was no one. It was the order of things, the turn of circumstances. Some order of things was killing him, Pierre, depriving him of life, of everything, annihilating him. Woof. This is the counter-argument to a benevolent providence. Yeah, that's how I took it too. Not as, again, Ian, it has two sides. Not as, here's what Tolstoy thinks, but here's what it would feel like if we erred on this side. He's, he's aired yeah. the providential view quite a bit. Now he's airing the opposite side to really get our attention, I think, and make us consider the quandary. Yeah, and I, yeah, th that's, that's a great way to put it. The other thing you could say also is that... Um, he looks around the world and he sees determinism and he hopes that maybe it's providence instead. But what he sees though is determinism. And that seems to be a, a pretty strong through line. As I look back over the novel, things being what they will be because of the impossible for us to understand web of cause and effect. I really hope that he comes up with something deeper to say than that, but that might be it so far. 
Well, and that's the, that is the thing you have to wrestle with, with Tolstoy's philosophy. Yeah. There is no grand moment of martyrdom. Mm. I mean, we were just talking about Maria and Sonia, right? The, right. And Pierre, all along, and Andre, they've been trying to make something of themselves to give themselves meaning in this world. And Tolstoy has taken that away from them. And so what are they left with? Well, Pierre looks around and sees that he's going to die and can't assign a meaning to it and can't assign a reason to it or and even he can't give a face to the one that's going to be doing this to him it's just though it's a system it's the way the world is set up it's all these interlocking pieces and gears mm-hmm. and he's stuck in a machine that's gonna grind him up and spit him out oof it's chilling but knowing a little bit he may get a he may get a contradictory bit of evidence by the end of the story about what the universe is and how it thinks about him hmm. i'm like i'm excited to get on to that point yeah me too well, thank you both. This was this was wonderful and stimulating, and I, I love a good bit of fisticuffs. So fun. Um, I'll ask you for parting shots. Maybe we should just say, are we team Are we team Maria or team Sonia? Or are we team Nikolai? I Which think may that's have what I was going to say. One of them. <laughs> I think I'm team Nikolai, and I hope that he discovers how to be a man through all of this, and then is that for someone? I don't think he's there yet. Hmm. I think you're right. I'm interested to see Tolstoy's conclusion to Sonia's narrative. I mean, kind of my instinct is that she's part of the carnage of this story. And I think there's something kind of tragic to that. And she totally has brought it on herself. But also you can see why she has done the things that she's done. And I wish for redemption for Sonia. And I'm not sure I'm going to get it. Amen. What about you, E? I think I'm I'm with both of you. I am for Nicholas first and foremost above all those people. Princess Maria drives me crazy. Our listeners know that. <laughs> so and, and I f- I do feel bad for Sonia. Um, I think it's a childish relationship and one that probably wouldn't last and can't. But boy, that girl has gotten a real bum, a raw deal. She's gotten a raw deal in this whole scenario. So I feel bad for Sonia. Same. And my I guess my own parting shot is I am Tolstoy and I have have beef right now. I'm looking at him like, dude. You are, you are, he's a little manipulative as an author from my perspective. Mm -hmm. He's asking me to think and feel things that he isn't justifying yet. Now we're not done. Maybe he will. But right this minute, I feel asked to think and feel things that aren't justified by what he's been telling me. I've been following along with him. I've been with him this whole time. And he just, he just yanked my chain and I'm going, Hey man, what gives? So (laughs) I guess we'll see what happens. (laughs) I'm all (laughs) and I'm like (laughs) "Ah." well you guys are both brilliant thank you for uh, for coming along with me on this journey and thank you listeners for being with us as well we are excited to rejoin you for the next five chapters next time around and in the meantime friends bon appetit bon appetit bon appetit want to follow along with our reading You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.